Tonight, we're going to get into the book of Genesis, but before we do that, I want to finish up a few things last week. By the way, I've been meaning to mention it, and I keep forgetting, you guys are a tremendous audience. Most audiences have an attention span of about 30 seconds. (laughs) You guys are going an hour and a half, and you don't even get up and go to the bathroom, so I don't (laughs) know. Yep. So I uh, I appreciate it because there are so few so few groups that will sit for an hour and a half straight without a break, and you guys are right in there. Last time we were looking at the second issue, we we started off. I gave you an introduction, and then we spent two weeks on creation versus evolution. And we showed that evolution really does not have any credible scientific evidence. The evidence they present is superficial. Then I gave you lots of scientific data and evidence that supports the idea of an intelligent designer. And the only one that fits the characteristics of such a designer is the one that's described in the Bible. We call him God. New Testament says that Jesus also is the creator, besides the Father, and the Holy Spirit is there in Genesis 1, hovering over the waters. So creation is a Trinitarian endeavor. And the last two weeks, we've been looking at the second major issue, the Genesis flood versus what we described as historical geology. And last week, I gave you the scientific evidence, and if you noticed at the very bottom of the outline sheet, there was a little category that we ran out of time. In fact, I had 130 slides or something that I showed you last week, almost twice as many as we've had in prior sessions, but most of them were real quick. So, uh, historical geology is the secular science explanation for the history of the earth, And according to the historical geologist, there's no evidence for a Genesis flood, a worldwide flood. And I tried to show you that there's actually overwhelming evidence last time. And we didn't quite get done with that. We looked at scriptural evidence, and then we looked at scientific evidence. And we didn't quite get to, and I just real quick, because we are packed tonight as well. In fact, I probably won't get done tonight, but that's okay. Evidence from history and culture, and there's several things we could talk about, but just a few things. The main thing is there are over 150 flood traditions, clear flood legends in some cases, or stories that uh, different cultures hold to, and there's over 150 of them. So essentially, it's a worldwide phenomenon which suggests that uh, there had to be something in the past that peoples, no matter where they come from, have either a memory or a story that is passed on that uh, suggests that there was something catastrophic. And in the record of those that we have, there are a lot of similarities. I'm not going to get into some of that detail, but all of them are dealing with a disaster where all of mankind is about to be obliterated, and only a few are saved, and many of them are floods. Many of them are saving on a boat or a ship or something. Over 150 of them. 
Here's one of the most famous ones, the Sumerian uh, tablet. Gilgamesh epic is one of the epics that has to do with a, a flood, Babylonian, and many archaeologists as well as, I guess, historians date it before the book of Genesis. So the liberal approach is that Genesis borrowed from these traditions that are older than the time of Moses. Now, I wouldn't dispute that this is older, but what it is, it's a corrupted, a secular memory, if you will, of some catastrophic event. And what we have in the book of Genesis is God revealing to his people, particularly Moses, the inspired and inerrant record of a Genesis flood. So that's what we have. So even though this may be dated before, it's not that Moses borrowed from it, because there's the differences are more drastic than the similarities. So you can explain in terms of the age of it from the idea that this was a historical event that left an impression in the Babylonians, for example as well as other cultures that even predate Moses as well. And by the way, the Egyptians have a flood tradition as well. So that predates the book of Genesis. And this is just a list of different cultures. It's not all 150 of them, but major ones. The Sumerians, one of the earliest cultures on record that we know about archaeologically. Babylonians, just mentioned them. Persians, Syrians, Asia Minor, there are several from there. Greece, the Greek culture, Roman culture, Lithuania has a memory. The Russian people, Chinese even, so diverse all over the world. So we have a memory that's left or an impression that's made. India, Cree Indian, so North and South American, Cherokee, Aztecs, Central America, uh, how do you pronounce that? Papagoa, Mexico. All right. I'm an engineer, so I have trouble pronouncing words. Peru, South America, Fiji Islands, so Pacific peoples, Pacific Island peoples, Hawaii, and then I ran out of slide space, so that's as far as we go. But there's at least 150 of them all over the world, so you have evidence from that. So you might come to the conclusion and remember, the historical geologist bases everything on evolution, and we can answer that same question, why evolution? And we answered this when we completed our study on evolution. If God is creator, then all men stand accountable to him, and man needs something to replace God and the best that man has come up with, and he's made it uh, sound scientific so that there's some credibility or assumed credibility. So if God is the creator, then all men stand accountable and man does not want to face a holy God. Now we can add to that with the Genesis account. If the flood is historical, then all men will face God as judge. So men are accountable to a God that is creator of all things. And that makes him accountable, but now... There's going to be a day when all men have to stand before the creator and he will be judge at that point. And again, man does not want to face that. So that's what the flood kind of gives us in terms of why people hang on to the secular idea. Because you turn loose of that, 
The alternative is you have to face a holy God that's described in the Bible. So let's take a look at Genesis 1 and science. And I got to introduce it because this is very, very different from most ways of approaching the book of Genesis. So let me give you a little introduction to it, set a foundation for it. But kind of part of introducing it, science can only go so far. We've made that point on pretty much every one of our studies here. But it doesn't answer any of the ultimate questions. And it's only the Bible, and particularly Genesis 1, that answers these questions. Some of the most important ones, where did we come from? And the answer is that we are descended from apes or primates or all the way to one-celled animals. What's the common thing? From goo to the zoo to you or something? (laughs) The evolutionary idea? Where did we come from? That's not a satisfactory answer. The better answer is what Genesis 1 tells us, particularly verse 26. Another ultimate question, who are we? In other words, what is the nature of man? The secularist doesn't know that as well. And as a result, we have distorted ways of treating one another. Why are we here? Science can't answer the purpose question. Genesis tells us. In fact, it lays out the purpose of all of mankind. Genesis 1, right after the creation. Also, Genesis 1 is the foundation of all things. In fact, I teach an entire course. I call it Biblical Foundation for All Things. All Things. In some ways, I'm giving you a little survey of some of that. These are the assumptions that we come to the Bible with or we come to the world with. We believe that God exists as revealed in the Bible. And by the way, the only way that we know the true God is by revelation. I believe in the concept of God being incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. I could give you several verses that uh, demonstrate the incomprehensibility of God. Now, that doesn't mean he's not knowable. It's different. God is knowable in that he has organized our minds to be able to know him, but he's incomprehensible in that we cannot figure him out. In fact, we cannot understand the reality of who God is, and left to ourselves, we create a God after our own image. But God is knowable, and God has revealed himself such that that revelation is contained in Scripture, and it is only Scripture that we come to a true understanding of the true God, the one true God. And we're utterly dependent on that revelation. And we can't know everything about God. That's also part of the incomprehensibility. We can't know everything about him. It takes omniscience to do that. But he's revealed to us what he is pleased to let us know and what he wants us to know about himself. So that God exists. He's the creator. He has spoken and he has revealed himself. And we assume that. And if he's revealed himself in this word, that's why we trust it and we give it. And the emphasis I'm going to make tonight is we give it priority over any other way of coming into a knowledge of truth. So he has spoken and he has revealed. And that revelation has priority over scientific theory. Science is perhaps, and I'm not against science, that's my background, But science is probably the best means that we have come up with as humans to arrive at truth. 
But even that truth is not absolute. Absolute truth is embodied in God himself. Absolute truth is personal. Father is true. Remember in our introduction? Back to that. The Son, I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. The Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of truth. That is absolute truth. And God has revealed absolute truth in his word. A little review here. So that's the perspective we're coming from. Therefore, scientific theory or scientific, you might even say truth, is not absolute. It changes. Absolute truth is eternal, unchanging. Nature today also, this is another assumption that I make. It's actually more than an assumption. Nature today is different than what it was in the past. And I believe that the laws of science are different. And if we had more time, I could develop that idea. But I think at the fall, all of the creation was radically affected. And in fact, there are, I believe, some laws that did not exist before the fall. And I'm going to emphasize this idea in Genesis 1, because we have in Genesis 1 the beginning, basically, of a lot of things, because it's the foundation for all things. So and the flood exactly some things were tweaked i believe changed as a result of the flood and we could talk about that as well but we don't have time so there are different approaches to the book of genesis and particularly genesis chapter one. First of all and i'm talking about believers or church people in terms of how do we handle the book of genesis in light of what we know scientifically And what the scientific community is telling us, because the scientific community, as we've already said, denies that God is the creator, and it denies also chapters 6 through 9 concerning a Genesis flood. Uh, What's the approach? In general, this is what the church does. It capitulates, and it reinterprets scripture according to a liberal mindset that is anti-supernatural or supernaturalist and essentially takes the position of liberalism or higher criticism. I won't get into the detail of that. That's probably the most common in the broader church, including the liberal churches. The most popular view amongst evangelical churches, even Bible-teaching churches, is to accommodate Genesis 1. In fact, the first 11 chapters accommodate it to science. Huge mistake, even though the majority of Christians, the majority of the church, majority of pastors, the majority of theologians take this approach. In other words, they are intimidated by science because most of them are not trained in it, for one. And as a result, they think, well, you know, it's science. I mean, science is up here. They almost look at science as if it were inspired and inerrant and absolute truth. But that's why I went through that in the introduction, that it's not absolute truth. That was the whole point of that. And when you come to Genesis 1, this is the common approach, to accommodate it and try to fit it into science today. That's why I mentioned the science that we look at today is different than the science that's going on in Genesis 1. We don't live in a very good creation. Something happened to that very good creation. does not exist right now. There's going to be a restoration, and you look at Revelation 21 and 22, or Isaiah 
65, Isaiah 11, you see little hints that there's going to be a restoration of not just man spiritually, but a restoration of the entire creation, just as the entire creation was in fact put under a curse. Remember the Romans 8 passage I gave you when we were, did I give it to you guys? I forget what I do. Sometimes I get mixed up. But anyway, the point I'm making here in general, what the church has done, this is what science says. I believe the Bible. I believe God inspired it. And I even believe that it's inerrant, but somehow it has to fit in to current science. Got that? That is the most common view. This is what you'll encounter. I'm going to propose, and this is very minority viewpoint, instead of accommodating, we counterattack. And we have an apologetic, and you've seen some of it already. In other words, we can defend Genesis 1 as God as creator because the scientific evidence supports it. We can defend a Genesis flood because there's overwhelming scientific evidence that supports it. Well, that's not the reason we do it. We do it because we we believe the biblical text, and we believe that it's inerrant. We believe that it's inspired, and therefore inerrant. And therefore, we look and see, is there evidence in science? And when we come to science, we find out that since God is the creator, then it makes sense that he, in fact, has revealed accurately what he has done in the past in terms of uh, creation and in terms of the flood. So we don't accommodate. We go to the text first, and that's what I'm going to develop here. So that's the approach that we take. And in fact, uh, Genesis, I think, is a polemic against all other worldviews. So you have to understand Genesis, and now you're in a position to actually counterattack all the other worldviews. And I think it's interesting that the book of Genesis historically has been under attack probably since the days of Moses. So I think Genesis is, in fact, a polemic. I don't think that's the primary emphasis of it, but it serves as a polemic to all cultures and all worldviews because it is presenting to us a biblical worldview. And if you understand the biblical worldview, that is on the basis of, it's on the basis of God's inspiration and inerrancy. What is the definition of a kind of a counterattack, a defense? Yeah. There you go. There you go. Very good. I love the sister that uh, is on the ball there. Okay. So, When Moses was writing, he was writing to the children of Israel that knew nothing except Egyptian culture. They were raised as babies out from an Egyptian culture. Moses himself, educated as a adopted son of the pharaohs. He had the best education that uh, was available. It was Egyptian. They come out of a polytheistic idea or a culture Polytheism was the dominant worldview in terms of what is God like. This is the background of every single one of the Israelites that came out in the Exodus. The book of Genesis, I could show you if we had more time, but I'm going to spend more time in the text. It refutes polytheism right off the bat. It refutes a lot of other cultural ideas that the Egyptians had. It basically undermines the Egyptian worldview because the Children of Israel needed to have a biblical worldview that was different. So it was a polemic 
to the culture they came from. They were coming out of Egypt and God was eventually going to take them into a land that he promised them that has Canaanite background, that has Babylonian background, Babylonian influence. Through their history, they're going to be influenced by the Babylonians and in fact, eventually corrupted by all of those cultures. So in fact, Genesis is a polemic against the Babylonian cosmology, you might say. It presents things that goes contrary to that culture as well, and you could include Canaanite on that as well. Interestingly, I believe in our counterattack, the Genesis account, and particularly the creation account of Genesis 1, is a polemic against 21st century science. Make sense? So we're going to take a counterattack approach, and we're going to look at the inspired text And from the inspired text, now we have a framework to do good science. This is a little review of the introduction I gave you. So hermeneutics is the science of what? One word. Interpretation. All right. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, or you have the principles of interpretation. Hermeneutics deals, it's it's a broad science, if you will a broad area of study, but uh, we think of it more in terms of how do you interpret scripture, but we also interpret many things. In fact, if I go to Ukraine and I go over there and there has to be somebody that can translate what I teach over there into the Russian language. So that's part of the interpretive stage. In other words, I'm just babbling up there and somebody has to make sense of what my babble is so that they can understand it. They're interpreting the sounds that I make into the sounds that that classroom will, will understand. It's part of the process. It's translation, we call that, but it's part of hermeneutics. So hermeneutics involves many areas as well. It's just communication, principles of communication, Certainly, we interpret scripture, and there are sound interpretive principles. There's a sound hermeneutic. There's a faulty one as well. And by the way, most Christians use kind of a mixture of good and bad in their interpretation, so it's good to take my course, hermeneutics. But that's not where we start. But the essence of what we're trying to do, and this is what you want to focus in on on any passage, whether it be the book of Genesis or Revelation. And I think it's summarized by Mickelson. This is hermeneutics text. The goal is to find out the meaning of a statement for the author. In other words, the statement that the author has put down in the text. You want to understand what he intended and for the first hearers or readers, and thereupon to transmit that meaning to modern readers. We're interpreting the text. But the key hermeneutical principle, in fact, in all of communication, the key principle is what did the communicator intend to communicate? This is the basic breakdown in husband and wife communication. What did she say? She said this, or what did she mean? Which is more important. She may have said the opposite, but because you are married to her and you know her, oh, I know what she means. And that's the approach that we take to Scripture. So we are attempting to see what we we want to think in terms of put ourselves in the position of the Israelites and how would they have understood Genesis 1 and how would Moses, would he have communicated it? And in fact, if you take just that principle alone, 
Would have Moses intended us to understand that the days in Genesis 1, six creative days, were long periods of time? Probably not, because that concept is relatively recent. And there's other things. That's just an example I'm giving you. But anyway, that's the task in any passage and is especially important in some of these more controversial and difficult passages. Okay, But hermeneutics is not only applicable to Scripture. Hermeneutics also involves interpreting nature. In fact, the whole scientific endeavor is a hermeneutical exercise. What is the creation communicating? In other words, what can I learn when I study science? So we're interpreting data, scientific data. And remember, I also gave you a little introduction in terms of historical science. Remember that part? When we're looking at things that took place in the past, they occurred how many times? Once. And events have left traces, and all we can do is evaluate them. But in evaluating the traces of past events, you have to interpret the data that's available. So interpretation is involved. We're taking a different interpretation. And this is what is happening, not only amongst the church, and this is why we have a different viewpoint than uh, the accommodators. They are using present science, scientific approach. We call that methodological naturalism. In other words, science is interpreted based on naturalism, which is a religion, by the way. This is current science. It always hasn't been this way. This is where science has drifted today. And there's a specific way of describing it, methodological naturalism. In other words, you only deal in science with things that you can explain from a naturalistic perspective. So you eliminate miracles. You eliminate revelation. That's current science. Now, I do a talk. It's on the website. In fact, I recommend it. We're not going to do it here. But... I have a biblical foundation for science where I give a totally different approach to science, and it gives better results. So I recommend that to you. Methodological naturalism imposes naturalistic theory on whatever you're studying. There are flaws to this approach. Uniformitarianism, we talked about this, Genesis Flood, so this is a review for you. Uniformitarianism is a fundamental assumption And the key idea here is the present is the key to the past. In other words, the laws of science that exist today have always existed. So you interpret Genesis based on the laws and constants that you can observe today. That's uniformitarianism. That's why at the very beginning I said the Bible indicates that there have been radical changes at the fall. And at the flood, radical changes. The science that we study today is different. In other words, the natural laws are different than they were before. This is probably a new concept to most of you. So uniformitarianism is a fundamental assumption of science today. And it's adopted by those that accommodate science to scripture. They assume uniformitarianism. It's scientifically unverified because you can't, because you can't go back in the past. You can't go check. Well, what were some of the laws that existed before the Genesis flood? But in the biblical text, you have little hints that something was radically different for people to be able to live 900 years. In fact, a combination of a lot of things were probably present before the flood, 
for people to exist that long. And there's a lot of other little details in the text that give you the idea that we're living in a different world. In fact, that's what Second Peter 3 says. That world perished. That world was destroyed. And we're living in a different world with different, maybe, maybe just slight, but some constants are different probably. I mean, I can't verify that. But the Bible seems to indicate that that is the case. And therefore, you can't go back and conduct an experiment because the flood has already taken place. You can't go back and check it out. So it's scientifically unverifiable. And I can't prove it either. But I get the idea from what the Bible tells me in terms of little details that seem to indicate that something was radically different before. I think the the whole geological column is totally, in other words, the face of the earth is radically different. So all of geology is radically different than it was before the Genesis flood. Just another example. And from Genesis 3, we realize that the world and in fact, the universe is under a curse. What does that mean? Well, probably the second law of thermodynamics came into effect for the very first time. The idea of decay and degeneration and movement from order to disorder, probably at the fall. So here's the whole law of science that was probably introduced, and I gave you the Romans passage that seems to indicate that that's what happened. The creation was subjected. In other words, it wasn't this way before. It was very good. All right? So it's scientifically unverified, and it goes against Scripture, and that's what I've just been talking about. So the first flaw is uniformitarianism. We talked about evolutionism and the flaw of it. We also talked about humanism. In other words, man has to have a different explanation than what the Bible gives us because he doesn't want to be accountable. So we come up with the best that we can in our thinking, in our rational thinking. So that's humanism. It excludes revelation. Don't bring religion into the schools. Don't talk about creation. That's religion. We want science. That's evolution, right? Well, that's what we're told, but... It's really the opposite. Well, we really have two opposing religions at work and two approaches to science at work. So it includes revelation and it tends to be anti-supernatural. And all of this influences the thinking of church people, unfortunately, because they're intimidated by the scientific community. We're somewhat overwhelmed by it. So that's the flaws of naturalism. So it imposes naturalistic theory, attempts to harmonize the biblical text with this sacred science. And you'll find this pretty common. It's probably the first time you've heard anything different, actually, right? Anyone heard you anything different? You don't know. <laughs> okay. The problem with harmonizing, this is just to introduce us into Genesis, because we're going to look at Genesis. This is what actually happened. This is real. This is what God has told us how he created the universe. We have an explanation. So we don't have to force Genesis into scientific theory. And when we get into the text, I'm going to give you some examples of how this is twisted. So those that accommodate attempt to harmonize the text. And what I'm going to give you here, I read a commentary by a scientist, an astrophysicist that had wrote a commentary And it's pretty typical of what you will read when you accommodate the text. And I observed four things that he did. What he had to do in order to make the text, and if I'm talking about, it's a commentary on Genesis 1, 
And he had to do these four things in order to harmonize the text. First thing he had to do is emphasize the details of the text that supported his scientific theories. And in his case, of a long earth or a long time frame, billions of years. So number one, he emphasizes supporting details. He superimposes, number two, current theories of science. In other words, Genesis has to fit these theories of science. Number three, he reinterprets the text. In other words, he doesn't let the text speak for itself. He doesn't look for what did Moses intend in the text, but instead what these theories force us to come to in terms of conclusions concerning the text. And fourthly, he, in a big way, ignores the details that don't support his theory, just skips over them. This is common. And the reason I use them, even though I observed them in one commentary, this is what you will find generally. Four things. Emphasizing the supporting details, superimpose current theories, reinterpret the text to fit those theories, and ignore the details of the text that go against it. So what you're doing is basically reading, yes, reading ideas into the text that are not there. Reinterpreting the text. So what we're going to do, we're going to do different. We're going to take a biblical worldview. If you take a biblical worldview, you begin with Scripture. And I know, well, there are several, but I know of two very prominent, world-renowned, actually, scientists, at least in the creationist community, that actually both lived here in Albuquerque for a time, world-class scientists, Russ Humphreys, you probably heard of him, John Baumgartner gave, gave us that flood model that I gave to you. These guys are top-notch scientists. One works, Sandia Labs, Russ Humphreys, retired from there, his entire career basically there. The other one, Los Alamos National Labs. So these are not, you know, just, what do you call them? <laughs> anyway, flakes, flaky, flaky people, good word. This is their, their approach. Before they do research, and I'm talking about the research that they're doing for the labs. Before they do research, they study the scriptures to see if there's any insight that they can draw from the scriptures, or if there's anything directly there that talks about what that area of research is. That sets the parameters for their research, and now they can eliminate a lot of areas that perhaps a secular scientist might say, well, we need to go in this direction or this direction. They start with scripture. And I would suggest, and our creation group here, this is kind of those that are part of it, this has been their approach as a result of the influence of Humphreys and John Bonner. So we begin with the inspired and inerrant text. And now that gives us a framework to do good science. That's what we're going to do with Genesis 1, if I can ever get to it. We avoid evolutionary theory because it's bad theory. We interpret the physical data based on that framework. That is good science, and you'll end up with good results. The tendency in history is the more that we know about science, the more it conforms to what God has revealed in his word. That's the tendency, rather than undermining. The only things that undermine the scripture are man's ideas like theories of evolution. True science supports what we believe. And it makes sense. God is the creator, and if he's the creator, then he's not going to contradict what he says in his word concerning what he created. So the more we know about science, we're going to find out it's going to confirm what he reveals in Scripture. See that approach? See the difference? 
Okay, so that's what we're going to do. I've shown you this chart several times. If you're starting out from a humanistic, evolutionary worldview, you're going to look at the same data. You're going to end up with millions of years or another evolutionary idea. If you begin with the assumption that you have an inspired text and you use that revelation, we have more data. We have inspired, inerrant data. Now we can interpret the physical data, and we're going to come up with a different conclusion. Make sense? All right. The whole issue is an issue of authority. The old earth view, I'm going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about is the earth in the range of thousands of years, or is it in the range of billions of years? And you never hear anything other than the billion-year scenario. The old earth view is based, they say, on science, but science is the final authority, not scripture. It's only the minority view, and they have to twist scripture to fit. It's only the minority view, a young earth or young universe, relatively young, that has scripture as the final authority. And that's why I went through this long introduction to set that foundation and try to convince you that this is what we have to do. And then science will fit into that biblical worldview or biblical framework. Following? So let's look at Genesis 1. And I'm going to go into as much of it as we, we can, but you'll get a feel, and we'll probably not get through it all, you'll get a feel of how you can continue and just go into the text. But I'll give you the essence of it. So uh, just a quick outline of Genesis. We have primeval history, Genesis 1 through most of chapter 11. We have the history of creation, and that's the only part that we'll look at, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, 1, 1 to 2, 3. And we have, first of all, the creation of the universe, I think in summary form, verses 1 and 2. And then after that, we're going to look at six days. This is all on your outline sheet. So this is, don't try and copy that, that's on the outline sheet. So let's look at one and two, first of all, and we start off with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and for you Hebrew students, you like uh, the words, Bereshit, bara, Elohim, Hashamaim, va, et ha, Eretz. And the beginning, one of the first things, in fact, this is the foundation for all things, the first thing that the emphasis of Genesis 1-1 is concerning who God is. Now, I should have, should have stated before I came to the next slide. This is one of the reasons I also mentioned at the very beginning, we started off with this verse, and I said, I asked you the question, is this a theological statement or is this a scientific statement? And we, I tried to show you that it's both. It's every much a scientific statement as anything you'll find in a physics book. Gave you some detail on that. So, First statement of the Bible is a statement of fact, a statement of descriptive science, basically. But also, it tells us something of God. And that's the beginning. And uh, that's the starting point. Because we have to have a good perspective of who God is. Otherwise, everything else is distorted. So we have Elohim. And I have a transliteration there for God there. We'll talk a little bit about that. But this sets forth lots of things that we have to understand in terms of science. So very quickly, we have a transcendent God. In other words, when, when it says in the beginning, that means there's, well, there's nothing there. There was nothing. We have beginnings here. So there was a time when there was not a universe. There's a time when there was no creation. 
Theologians call this God as transcendent. That means he's a part from the creation. He's separate and distinct. That is different from every other world view, the transcendent God. And it's a major distinction of the biblical worldview as opposed to any other approach, whether it be Babylonian, whether it be whatever. And not just religion, philosophy as well. All non-biblical views, we have a continuity of God's and the creation. There's a union, a continuity. You see this in every culture. What were the Egyptian gods like? In other words, the people that, you know, the children of Israel came out of the Egyptian culture from that people. What were their gods? Yeah, part human, part animals, mainly animals. Nature. Nature, the Nile River was... There was a god of the Nile. The sun god was a prominent god, the god of the sun. And by the way, the the Exodus, the ten plagues, is a polemic. God showing that the sovereign god, the one god of the Bible, the Israelites need to experience that. They saw, wow, God is more powerful than all these puny gods. They can't do anything. He can turn the Nile. Where's the god of the Nile? He didn't prevent God from turning it into blood. Anyway, this is common. This was common with the Babylonians, the Romans. What are their gods like? There are many gods, but some of them... Planets, I mean, they had to do with, you know... Nature as well. So there's a continuity. The Greeks, they elevated man, so a lot of their gods are just after the image of man. Continuity of the gods and the creation. It's only the Bible that speaks of a creator distinct from the creation. Distinction between the creation and the creator. That's huge. That's important. So God is separate and distinct. We call that transcendent. Transcendent God. This also implies there's two realms. There's a a realm outside of the material realm. The naturalist says there's only one realm, the natural realm. Science concentrates only on that realm, eliminates, ignores that other realm. And yet there is influence upon the natural realm from that outside realm. There's influence. In fact, angels perform a lot of things in nature. If you study angelology, you'll see that, uh, in fact, in the book of Revelation, you have a complete angelology. God uses angels to implement a lot of the judgments in the book of Revelation. So there's interaction between two different worlds. And from a scientific perspective, there's not just you know, the forces of gravity and atomic forces, there's other things going on. That's right. Ephesians 6, exactly. So there's two realms. Before you even get into much into the text, the first word, and it's just one word in the Hebrew text, in the beginning, Bereshit, we have a God that is eternal. He's there. In other words, everything else is not there. But in the beginning, now we have the process of things coming into being. God is not in God, but God is there. He's the creator. So it implies eternality, and we, you know, we could spend a lot of time. He's a personal God. He, he acts. He works. He speaks. I gotta go through these fast. He's, but he's also eminent. And what we mean by that, he's not only separate and distinct, and that's what holiness also speaks of, is God being separate and distinct, but he also involves himself with uh, the creation. He gets his hands dirty when he creates man. Sticks it into the dirt, creates man, interacts, 
And then he enters into communication and relationship with man. That means he's imminent. He's also preeminent. In other words, he's above all things. He's above the creation. And there's lots that we can talk about. He's even Trinitarian right off the bat. Elohim in Hebrew is plural. It's plural. The verb is singular. Bara is singular. That's bad grammar generally, but it's intentional in the Hebrew text. It's telling us that God is more than singularity. Now, it doesn't state the Trinity. We don't know. In fact, the Old Testament is, is a little vague on this idea of Trinity. It's not until we get to the New Testament that's crystal clear that God is Trinitarian. But there's even hints because we have plurality in terms of God, and then we have a spirit in verse 2. So God is Trinitarian, and it's a singular verb because he's looked at as one. God is one. You kind of have the foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity right off the bat in Elohim. And he's sovereign over all things, and the rest of Scripture develops all of these ideas. Just one passage, Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. And I think it's absolute. If you want something in the New Testament, and Jesus, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all sovereignty, you could interpret it, or all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Two realms. He's sovereign. Okay, we can go down the list here. He's gracious. He's omnipotent. He didn't have to create. He's omnipotent, takes omnipotent power to create. His creation is very good, implying that it reflects something of his character. He's good. He's wise. There's information built into the creation. And eventually the text tells us that he enters into covenant with man. And I ran out of space on the slide again, so we've got to stop there. We'll get to it. So what do we have right off the bat from science? We have an absolute beginning. Now there's different ways of... And I think legitimate ways of taking Genesis 1, I take it as an absolute beginning. And there's different views, and some of them are influenced by some of these accommodating approaches as well. We have an absolute beginning. We also have no Big Bang. And if you really believe in a Big Bang, what you're really believing in, you're saying nothing exploded and became everything. That's pretty miraculous, right? Now, this is what happened, but it's not a big bang. In other words, God, out of nothing, created everything. But we have God as creator, not things coming about on their own. In other words, nothing suddenly becoming everything. That's big bang. And there's lots of problems. In fact, there's a couple of books on that bibliography. There's a couple of books on there that show the weaknesses of the big bang theory. It's got lots of problems. The main problem is how do you come up with everything from nothing without a creator? We have the origin of physics and chemistry. If you want to know where physics and chemistry comes about, you don't have to go any further than Genesis 1.1. And by the way, well, I've already mentioned the laws of physics are a little bit different now than they were at the end of Genesis 1. We have the beginning of physics and chemistry. What's the first thing we have in uh, 2? The earth. You have elements. The earth was without form and void, and it seems like it's a sphere of water from verse 2. We could spend, oh, I don't know, 20 sessions in Genesis 1 if we want to go. I'm giving a kind of quick overview of Genesis 1. But you have probably a sphere of water, because that's what it says, because there's no land, and it's probably H2O, so you have chemistry right off the bat. 
You have the composition of whatever God made there that he calls earth. That's chemistry. And it's held together. You have to have physics. So you, and you have probably, in fact, we have recently, Einstein proposed general relativity. And that's been verified by several experiments, particularly atomic explosions, where there's a relationship between time and matter. They're connected. And you could include energy, time, matter, and energy connected and related right off the bat. Just the statement concerning water tells us that's the beginning of it all. And you also have a uniform background temperature, which is a major problem for the Big Bang. Because the Big Bang suggests that you would have had a lot, a tremendous amount, if you have an explosion, a tremendous amount of heat that over time would slowly dissipate. And you'd have differential, in other words, closer to wherever the Big Bang was, you'd have higher temperatures. But scientists are agreed that you have more of a uniform temperature. This is also related to uh, that uniform cosmic background that scientists speak of. But the universe is relatively the same temperature. Makes sense? And this is all right at the beginning, 1-1. One, one. Well, it, uh, it's a major problem for the evolutionist. If you believe in a Big Bang, there should be a hot spot and further away from the center, it should be cooler. The point I'm making is if you really understand scientific law, it supports more this idea of God as creator and he created something of a more uniform universe rather than what the theories of man have come up with. The theories of man always have problems. It's just one of them. So you have the beginning of cause and effect, the whole idea of cause and effect. You don't have anything because you have the first cause. That's a problem for the secularists. Everyone admits that there's a cause and effect in the universe. Well, Part of the idea of cause and effect, you have to have one cause before you have an effect. Well, where's the first cause? You have to have the first cause for the first effect. It's the Bible that says that you have, have to have a creator to start things going. And that creator creates a full-blown universe. So, and this is partly physics, but relates to everything else. And we notice right off the bat, earth is a priority. Verse 2, the earth, Eretz, is the word, Pat. Eretz. E-R-E-T-Z. But earth is a priority because God is going to send his son to die eventually on earth, not Saturn, not Sagittarius or whatever, or wherever. Earth is a priority from the beginning. And even Russ Humphreys, his theory is that earth is probably close to the center of the universe. And we have, like we said, water. And in order to keep a sphere, we have gravity. Now, the text doesn't state all these things, but it, it supports ideas that we can derive. These are the, the text gives us the parameters. So day one, we have light, verses three through five. And just a summary, we have a creator-creation distinction, very huge, absolute beginning, no big bang. And I'm going to go over this quickly. This is just the pattern that we find in the six days. God speaks, which is huge. God speaks, revelation. Then we have a divine fiat, the words, the specific words that he speaks. Let there be something or let there appear something. In other words, it's in the Hebrew, it's almost a, like a command. It's not 
a strictly speaking a command. It's in the it's like adjusted in some cases, but has the idea of God speaking things into existence, almost like He's commanding things to be to come about. The big thing is God speaking, and that several times. I'm going too long here, and this is huge in terms of science. Immediate fulfillment. It was so, and in every creative act, the first one. And God said that there be light, and there was light. In other words, the immediate fulfillment. In some cases, it says, let there be this, and it is so. No time. In other words, not millions of years in between here. Immediate fulfillment. And then you have the action where God takes action. And in some cases, the reason I don't add this is in some cases, it doesn't follow the pattern. Sometimes there's blessings. Sometimes there's multiple blessings. Sometimes a blessing is left off. We have an evaluation. And again, that's not... In every one of the six days, it was good. In other words, no degeneration, no second law. And then we have the terminus. It was evening, it was morning, one day, or second day, third day, etc. Okay, that's the pattern. One thing that we can talk about, when God created, he created, Colossians tells us, Colossians 1 tells us he created things visible and what? Invisible. And when we speak of invisible, he's not only talking about a spiritual realm, but he's talking about other things as well. And we can also talk about this whole idea from the very beginning, God creates. In fact, I should have asked you the question, where does language come from? God. He's the communicator. He's the originator. He speaks. Well, before that, even before Adam, in verse 3, and God said. They're not stated, but yeah, probably, yeah. But anyway, God speaks. This is huge. God communicates. We have the origin of language. Language doesn't come from man. Man didn't grunt sounds and call it table or whatever. And then another man says, oh, every time he says whatever, <laughs> it's that. God speaks. Language is from God. We can even say from Genesis 1, there's an inner Trinitarian communication. Let us Who's the us? Let us make man. And there's communication. There's inner Trinitarian communication. Mm -hmm. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And it implies the power of his word. And this is another reason why this is his word. And he's already setting patterns in Genesis in terms of the importance of his word, what he has spoken. And he creates all things by creative power. So the means of creation is his word, God said. And we have the rest of scripture supporting Genesis 1, Psalm 33, 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, this is poetic, two lines, synonymous parallelism. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. For he spoke and it was so. And that reflects Genesis 1 as well. For he spoke and it was so, and he commanded there's parallelism again, synonymous. He commanded, and it stood fast. I skipped the verses in between because that's kind of the main emphasis there. And there's others as well. It's probably the clearest. Uh, there's other passages that speak of God creating, using wisdom. And we can see that reflected in the creation. And obviously, he used omnipotent power. This is a biblical foundation for language. In other words, these are the. this sets the parameters for linguists. That's why I call it a biblical foundation for language. 
if you're in the whole field of, of literature, language, communication, this is a biblical foundation. Number one, th these are the parameters God communicates. Secular world, God is silent. In fact, I have the alternative over here, this is the secular viewpoint, God is silent. God does not speak, there's no God. God communicates. It's the means of creation. So communication, and particularly God's communication, is not trivial. Huge, very important. Language begins in God, not man. The secular view is it comes from man. It doesn't come from man, it comes from God. Fourthly, God begins to put language in motion in that he identifies. What are nouns? Nouns are things. And we know what they are because they have names and we categorize things. You know, a cat is a cat and it's different from a dog. And God begins by setting the pattern for language by communicating. He distinguishes. In other words, nouns are distinct. He, he separates, making distinctions. And he calls the, the light portion of the day. He gives it a name. It's day. He gives the night portion and he distinguishes the two. This is what we do. This is how our brains work is we make distinctions. And when we see an object, we know that this is a cat and this is not, or this is something else. We make a distinction when we make these observations. God is setting that in motion right in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1. He names things. He names the heavens, the heavens, and, you know, the earth, earth. There's others in the world. Just to give us a little hints. So God makes the distinctions, not the linguists. And he builds man, when he creates man, he creates man to be able to communicate to him with language. And we, our brains work after the pattern that God has created. We observe that we have nouns, we also have actions that we call verbs. That's language. It starts with God. And he builds into man the ability to form sounds that communicate certain things, that have patterns. And in mankind, we have, you know, we speak with our teeth. We use our teeth. In fact, uh, sounds are called dentals as a result of using the teeth, our tongue, the top of our uh, our palate, our lungs, and the specific voice box. It's not just the voice box. We use the whole apparatus that God has built in. And he's built us that way in order to be able to communicate with one another and we, our brains are involved, the thought process is to be able to communicate a thought in my mind and try to convey it to someone else in order that we can convey and speak and communicate with God and he can reveal himself and communicate to us. That's all in, and God said. We're not going to finish. We're Dennis. <laughs> so this is all the basis of communication, not rationalism. Not rationalism. And it's the basis of science. This is the foundation of science. Science is categorizing and recognizing characteristics. Who's the first scientist besides God? What's the first task God gives man? <laughs> Names the animals. It's in the text for a reason. It's, it's not just, oh, this is kind of a nice thing. We, we get the names from oh, Adam. No big deal. He's setting up the whole structure of science and language and communication. So this animal has this, and he has the ability to see characteristics in this kind of a creature. It has these characteristics, so he has an appropriate name that he gives it. And that name is what it is in terms of 
the language. And this one is different, so it has different characteristics and a different name. And that was the task that God gave him. He is basically setting up the biological categories of creatures for scientists. Basis of science, not naturalism. Spent too much time on that. God created, in other words, God is acting. He's personal, he's acting, he's not a dead God or a force. Created, we have several verses where bara is the word. There are other creative words, asa as well. He speaks, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24. God said, and God said, he separates, makes distinctions. He makes, that's asa, that's the other creative word. Verse 7, verse 16, verse 25, 2, 3. He places... In other words, he's involved in spatial orientation of objects, 17. And that's in reference to the two major lights. And he also blesses, blesses, grace. So he's active. You might even say he's, it's a hands-on work that is active. So day one, we have creator-creation distinction. We have an absolute beginning, no big bang. The means of creation, God speaking. We have the origin of language, and thus the origin of science, and thus the origin of technology. And we already saw the origin of physics and optics, but now we have optics as well, because what does he do on day one? He creates light, which is a branch of physics. And we already talked about chemistry, and we have the work of God, no naturalism. In other words... No natural processes. It is God that is working, creator. So it goes against naturalistic ideas. And there's immediacy. It was so. And there's also evaluation. God sets up a whole moral realm. There is good and there is bad. There are absolutes. That's part of God creating things visible and invisible. You see that? There's an evaluation. Some things are good, some things are not. Now, there's nothing not good yet, but even there's one not good in chapter 2. Yeah, it's not good that man be alone, but it's not a good in a evil sense. It's a good of incompleteness. Just like the earth was without form and void, I don't see a negative connotation necessarily in that context. It's the, the beginning of the process. There's no form and it's, it's empty. And so also in chapter 2, it's incomplete. Everything adds to everything mm -hmm. else. Yeah. We have the process of creation. It's not complete yet. And it's and when the very. Yes, at the end, when it's complete. And at that point, woman is created, and it's very good. That's right. Next week, we're going to talk about the issue of time, so I'm skipping over these slides. But actually, we have a hermeneutical principle. We call it the law of first use. And oftentimes in Scripture, when there's a first use of a concept or an idea, sometimes it's defined for us. And I think when we're talking about days in Genesis 1, I think Moses defines it for us. God called, in other words, there's the naming. He called the light day, all right? The light part of the day, he calls it day. And the darkness, he called night. And how could he be more specific? And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. How could he be more specific? 
So I think when he's talking about day, and I'll give you a little bit more on that, I believe what we have in Genesis are six creative days. And by the way, he is defining time before the sun. So the sun doesn't determine a day. There's a day that is already determined and set up. God creates the sun so that we could be able to identify the day that already existed. See, he's already created a time frame. That's another invisible. He created a time frame. And on day four, now we as humans can measure that day based on the rotation of the earth around the sun. So evening and morning, one day. He's defining it on day one. He could have used other terms. He could have used olam, which in some context, if it's in terms of distance, it's long distance. If it's in terms of time, it's long time. And Moses used olam in Genesis 3. So he was aware of that Hebrew word. He used it in chapter 3. He could have used it in Genesis 1 instead of the word yom, instead of day. Getting excited again? (laughs) (laughs) That's what yom is Yeah, day day of atonement. We know the terms. We don't know that. Yep, okay. And how cool. Yeah, Moses could have used olam. He could have also used, he also uses this arad. And again, it's a general term for the idea of something long or big. And in a time context, it's used in a time context by Moses as well. He doesn't use either one of these words. Do you have a question? What's the long? I think it's down in like 24, somewhere down there. What does that verse say? Yeah, I'll have to look it up. But it's, it's in Genesis 3. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay, day one, we have absolute beginning, no big bang. We have the means of creation, God speaking, origin of language, science and technology, origin of physics, optics, chemistry, it's a work of God, immediacy of fulfillment, no long ages, long time, immediacy. We have a definition of day, the establishment of a time frame. And that's very important in science, time. We have a lot of uh, relationships between things going on in physics and other areas of science. Uh, we also have a young earth, and I started to develop a little bit of that, and we'll talk more about that when we talk about the age of the earth. And that's all on day one. Lots of scientific implications, lots of frameworks, parameters for scientific issues. In verse 17, he says, all you will start to scratch a little. What verse is that? 17. It's about, you know, consequences mm-hmm. of sense. I don't think that's it. I'll have to... Well, sometimes it, sometimes it's used in a context like everlasting. Sometimes it's olam. So it can be a long, long time. More than millions of years. And by the way, why did God take six days? God could have spoke and said, let there be a universe including mankind. And what would happen? There'd be a universe including mankind. And it was so. That's a good. That's a good suggestion. Geneva knows. It was because of the establishment. Yes. Yeah. He's already defining a work week and a day of rest. Does God need to rest? Did he get real tired after six days? I mean, this was hard work. No, he doesn't need rest. But we get the explanation in the Ten Commandments when he specifies a Sabbath day of rest. And it's based on six days of creation. 
So God could have spoken and instantaneously there'd be a full-blown universe, but he's already setting patterns for other things later on. It's going back to exactly what you told last we can't comprehend him, but he's can't comprehend Yes. He's giving us, can at least have a framework. Yeah. yeah. Something to, to go with. To put everything into. Yeah. And we barely looked at day one. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm going to do. You're learning stuff. <laughs> You're learning stuff. You're enjoying this, so it's good. You're liking this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Be careful. You might get as excited as Pat. <laughs> We said it was good. <laughs> That's right. And by, by the way, what will you need to do? What do I need to do? I can come back and finish it if you want me to. Okay, so would that add on one more? Sunday? One more. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, or if you're tired of it, we could, if you're tired of it, we can quit next week and just do this instead of the long week. Is that all right with you? Come, come back and finish it. I'm really not trying to take over this class. <laughs> by the way, the best way to approach Genesis 1 is don't listen to the PhD that has a scientific degree and has all these degrees behind his name. Get your 11-year-old son or daughter and have them read the text. And as they, this is the way Moses wrote it. And as they explain it to you, you'll have a better understanding of what God intended to communicate in Genesis 1 than what the theologian that has too many degrees behind his name that's trying to harmonize Genesis 1 with uh, with current science. And it's what your mother has told you yes. because I said so. That's right. <laughs> and mom said. All right. So day two, uh, we'll talk about the spreading out of thinness. Spreading out it's the word rakia, since you like words. Okay, well, since Dennis gave us a go-ahead, we'll continue next week. Okay, who wants to close for us tonight? Pat's been doing it consistently. Somebody else? You want to do it? Father God, I thank you for another example. Learn about your force and our good God. Get it out in Genesis. Coming down to our love yours. Amen. Amen. Okay, Genesis 1. Hopefully we can do six more days next week.